are very interesting times for so many reasons. On the organized labor front and the worker freedom front, these are indeed remarkable times. The Janus decision by the Supreme Court uh, earlier this summer only cemented that fact, and a gentleman who was there and has been there in that battle for worker freedom joins us in the MacGyver News podcast Today, he is Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Good day, sir. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine, and it's exciting to chat with you about some of the important developments in labor policy as we do celebrate uh, this Labor Day. Absolutely. Let's take a look at some of the surprising findings from the uh, National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. You've been digging into the numbers, where we stand right now, where things are heading. Uh, let's uh, first look look at those numbers, if we could. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's been fascinating for us from a standpoint of uh, the first number and the important number is we celebrate Labor Day. We have 27 right-to-work laws uh, across the country, and we have right-to-work protections for every single government employee across the country. Uh, before the Janus decision back on June 27th, the uh, over 5 million government employees across the country were compelled to pay dues or fees as a condition of their employment, and they can no longer be forced, and that's uh, an exciting number. Uh, uh, and so from a standpoint of, of union density and other other questions, you know, union officials are, are really on the defensive, um, not labor unions per se, but union officials who have relied on government privilege for years and years and years are realizing that they're going to have to change their business model and start selling product if they're going to survive in a marketplace where now individual workers have the freedom to choose whether or not they want to support them financially. Indeed. What we are seeing, though, unfortunately, and what we've seen in Wisconsin, as you well know, over the past three years after Wisconsin implemented its right-to-work law, becoming at that time the 25th state in this nation to do so, uh, and also Act 10, which also serves as the original Janus, if you will, for the state of Wisconsin. But we have a number of public labor and private labor organizations trying to get around the laws, um, and that's something that I know... The National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation has been looking at a great deal of late. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. You know, it's it's almost, uh, it, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's surprising, but it's kind of this in-your-face mentality of union officials that have that have had these privileges, these government-granted privileges for so long that they refuse to give them up. In fact, in Wisconsin, we're seeing now uh, advertisements for job openings saying you must join a union. And, and that's just an absolute violation, not only of Wisconsin's right-to-work law, but it's also a violation of federal labor policy. You know, it was back in 1932... Uh, when when union officials finally got Congress to outlaw what they thought was an injustice, and that was the so-called Yellow Dog Contract. And, and the Norris LaGuardia Act and a few other labor policies in Congress basically said, you know, an employer could not could not solicit for employment saying you could not join a labor union. You had to, you, you, that was an illegal contract under federal law, but yet here here comes here comes employers in Wisconsin and union officials in, in Wisconsin making deals saying, yeah, let's go ahead and run an ad saying you must be a member, not only pay dues, but you must be a member of a labor union in order to get a job in Wisconsin. That's clearly a violation of, of not only the intent, but the actual language of the statute that exists in Wisconsin after Act 10 in the public sector and after uh, the right-to-work law that passed in 2015. Yeah, I think uh, you said it best recently when you joined Vicki McKenna on the Vicki McKenna Show, uh, News Talk 1130 WISN out of Milwaukee. 
you had said that's basically double jeopardy. We've got a double violation here at the federal and now at the state level. It even goes beyond that, doesn't it? It absolutely does, and and it's a, it's a violation of a Supreme Court decision back in 1961 as it relates to quote unquote formal membership in a private organization. So, it's it's uh, it's actually just kind of a you know a fist to the face, if you will, um, of of a way to say we're not going to comply with the law, and that's just ridiculous. I mean, obviously, you know, we've had a, we've got cases where uh, union officials demand that a worker be fired. In fact, we just filed a case on behalf of a worker who was literally fired, Matt, for to wear a union patch on a shirt wow. at a company in a right-to-work state. Wow. Yeah, so these these types of events are not surprising. I mean, they may be surprising to the listeners. Obviously, Matt, you're familiar with the issue, and yeah. MacGyver Institute's following this very closely and been instrumental in making making the the policy uh, recommendations and the policy pronouncements about what freedom and liberty do in, in not only the private sector workplace, but what they do in the public sector workplace at all. And Wisconsin has benefited from that for sure. Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, joins us on this Labor Day to talk about worker freedom and the many myriad advancements on that front, thanks in large part to folks like Mark Mix and his organization. Been working on this stuff for many, many years now, since uh, the 1980s. We're going to get into that momentarily, but just a final point, if we can, to put an exclamation point, on some of the rule bending going on from organized labor, Mark. One of the problems that I see as I've looked into the situation in Wisconsin, which has more you know, established law in place now with Right to Work and Act 10, is that we don't seem to have any teeth in terms of enforcement. It's very clear that if you pull some of these tricks, like the, the ones you talked about, uh, this employer and this union getting together and saying you have to be in a union in order to you know, apply for this position, that's illegal for so many reasons, but it doesn't seem like there have, there have been any repercussions for that. In the state of Wisconsin, you do something like that, Mark, you can go to jail for nine months per count and pay a $10,000 fine, but there have been no uh, punishments associated with some very clear violations to date. Yeah, Matt, and that's that's one of the ongoing issues that we have to deal with. Is first, it's kind of an educational issue now, letting people understand what their rights are, and then the constant vigilance of of filing lawsuits when someone has the courage to stand up and say, "Hey, my rights have been violated." The ability to take that person and and run them through a legal process that gets the a vindication of their rights. And you know, it's really interesting because oftentimes in these types of cases, we're talking more about an ideological set of values than we are a financial set of values. I mean, the idea of an individual employee going out and hiring a private employer to exercise rights when they're fighting over, you know, union dues that are, you know, $800, $900, dollars a year and having to retain a lawyer at a cost of five or 10 or 15 or 20000 you know, is, is, is not, it's, a, it's an Hobson's choice. I mean, you really, it's a difficult one to make. Yeah. But, and I will say this, I mean, it's not for lack of filing lawsuits. Like in Michigan, for example, when they passed the right to work law, I bet we had no less than uh, 50 cases that were filed about that. And the Hmm. more publicity you get when you win those cases, the more cases come in and the more you get kind of the procedure and the practice of actually enforcing these rights and seeing people that say, you know what, we can't do that. But you're right. I mean, until there's punishment, these folks will just keep doing what they're doing. And and that's why it's important, the work that MacGyver does and the work that we do and other groups uh, do to 
get the word out and to help defend these workers and give them real information about their rights, that's crucial. I know they can find that information uh, with you, Matt, at, at, at MacIver. Indeed, and they can certainly find it at National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. We'll give you all the information you need uh, for those who have suffered uh, under violations of right to work laws in this state or elsewhere. Um, we're going to get you connected to the people who can help on that front, Mark Mix and his group at the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. But let's uh, pause here and talk a little bit about uh, Janice and the after effects. Obviously, National uh, Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation was very instrumental in that case. Uh, one of the attorneys representing Mr. Janice from Illinois, this landmark case, what has happened since? Can you give us an update, Mark, on where things stand? Yeah, it's uh, it's been really, really exciting. And, of course, the Janus case is a case that came out of Illinois, a Seventh Circuit case on behalf of a state employee who stood up and said, I believe that everything that government unions do is political. They're speaking politically when they're talking about the conditions of employment when you work for government. And this Janus case was a follow-up to a series of Supreme Court cases that were litigated over the last several years, um, actually going all the way back to 1977, Matt, when the Supreme Court upheld the right of a government employee being fired from their job for failure to pay dues or fees to a union. So over the 40-year uh, odyssey, we've gone back to the Supreme Court six times on issues related to this First Amendment protection that we believe that workers and government should have. And, and each time we want a bigger piece of, of that freedom and that liberty and, and prove to the courts that a regulatory structure when it came to individual freedom and liberty in the workplace is not possible. You've got to come to a conclusion that you either are, you, it's either you're going to give them liberty or you're not. And, yeah. and the Janus case finally got to the point after a case out of California called Knox in 2012 mm -hmm. and a case out of Illinois called Harris in 2014 where this discussion about the, the political nature of, of government union speech became a very important point to the U.S. Supreme Court and it, it uh, manifested itself and culminated on June 27th when Justice Alito wrote for a five-member majority on the case that no government employee could be forced to pay dues or fees to keep their jobs. And what's happened since then, interestingly enough, is now uh, we've got lots of employees contacting us about exercising their rights. They can find out about their rights on a website called myjanusrights.org, mm -hmm. myjanusrights.org. That's where you can go for up-to-date information on Janus, on how to exercise your rights. Um, obviously, Matt, as you mentioned, our attorney uh, here at the foundation argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, and uh, so we feel like we've got pretty good knowledge about what what was what was debated, what was argued, and what was won. So uh, that's a good thing. Um, but what we're, we're finding is is is. A lot of state groups, uh, like McIver, are getting information out to employees. Of course, in Wisconsin, government employees had right-to-work protections. But in the 22 states that didn't have it, those employees need to know about it. And one of the developments coming around, Matt, is, is this notion of unions trying to create workarounds. They're, they're, they yeah. are struggling in states like California and New York and Illinois to find ways to say, you know, we're not going to let Janice stand. We're going we're gonna to use regulatory approaches and employment practice approaches to convince people that they must be in the union and get them to sign papers uh, indicating thereof because uh, this is a big significant blow to them. It sure is. Yeah, no doubt about it. This is their funding stream, and uh, they are quite upset that they are losing that stream. And we've seen it. We've seen it here, Mark, in uh, the, the national numbers as we take a look at Labor Day, take a look at where the labor 
union uh, numbers are today. They're stagnant at best. In Wisconsin, as you know, since Act 10, we have seen the state teachers union lose uh, 67% of its former union members. Isn't it amazing what a little worker freedom will do when people are given the choice? Well, Matt, I think that's right. I think Wisconsin is probably the best case study, and, and obviously the most recent case study as it comes to what workers will do, what individuals will do when they have the freedom to choose. You know, union officials want to make this battle out as, as evil guys like Matt Kibble and the McIver Institute attacking working men and women. Well, the fact is the battle is really about whether or not union officials have made a case to the workers they claim to represent that if those workers would give a choice, would they continue to support that union? And obviously in Wisconsin, they are not. And so the notion that you or I are somehow involved in this, other than providing a platform for individual workers to choose, it's the workers that make the decision at the end of the day. And in Wisconsin, as you mentioned, the numbers there speak for themselves. I mean, 67% of folks in some of those units have decided for themselves, I no longer want to be part of this. Exactly. And again, let's be clear. There's a lot of false narratives surrounding this issue. Right-to-work laws do not prohibit workers from joining a union. It has nothing to do with that. But it finally, they finally give workers the freedom to decide whether the worker wants to be in a union or not. You know, I, I didn't give you folks enough historical credit here, I, and I know better than that. You have been around longer than I mentioned before. You were around during the original Abood case. So you certainly know what a lengthy battle this has been, Mark. Yeah, we actually argued the Abood case here at the Right to Work Foundation. Yeah. We, the case there was a Michigan case. It was Abood versus the Detroit, Detroit Board of Education. And basically, we won half that case back in 1977. The case was, could you be compelled to pay overt political contributions? Meaning when the union makes political expenditures, literally political expenditures, so supporting a candidate or a cause, could you be forced to pay for that? And the Supreme Court got that part of it right, but they continued to maintain that, you know, this no that because the union is in this unique position and they've got to have these fees and dues. And we, we said then, and we said in the Janus case, and we said in, in the Hudson case, and the in the Davenport case, and in the Knox case, and in the Harris case, and obviously in the Janus case, that every time a government union speaks, they're trying to convince a legislature or a county commission or a city council or a mayor how to allocate government resources. Mm-hmm. That's political by nature. And the court bought that, understood and actually focused on that, saying everything they do is political, and therefore the First Amendment must apply. So, yeah, it's been a long battle. The foundation has been around since 1968, and uh, before that, the litigation was being uh, executed by the National Right to Work Committee, which has been around since 1955. So, yeah, we've been in the fight a while. I've been in the fight a while. I know that, uh, Matt, you, you, you know me, and I know I look 75, and I look really good for 75, but <laughs> actually, actually, I've, I've been doing this for 32 years now, and I'm, I'm still young, so... You- you don't look a day over 30, my friend. You don't look at it. Thank you, Matt. That's really good. I often tell people, I say, I look pretty good for 65, right? And they say, yeah, you do. I said, well, I don't look so good for 55. They say, yeah, you're right. You don't. <laughs> Well, that's life in uh, in the ba- on the battlefront, isn't it? Well, like like I said, you you folks have been doing great work for worker freedom, the advancement of worker freedom for a very long time. Just a quick uh, question back to uh, Janice. I know that you have also been working on 
the potential for reimbursement for all of those government employees who have been forced to pay union dues over the years and had done so in an unconstitutional basis. Where does that process stand? Yeah, we actually won the first case getting money back for an employee under the Janus Janus rights. We had an employee out on the West Coast that she was a state employee and the union was spending, spent $53,000 to defeat her husband in a political campaign. And so she got all her money back, which was great. Um, And we've got a, we've got a class action lawsuit in California on behalf of 40,000 state employees, which we believe would amount to about a hundred million dollar payoff from the union back to these state employees that were compelled to pay fees going back to the statute of limitations. Um, This is a case called Hamidi. It's in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, We've briefed it now post-Janus, and that argument will come up, I think, in November. We filed another class action lawsuit out there on behalf of 5,000 workers where we think they can get their money back. And then, of course, we have a case in Illinois. Uh, The next day after the Janus decision, the Supreme Court granted us another victory in a case called Riffey v. Rauner, which was a case on behalf of uh, a large class of home health care providers in Illinois. And we believe there's about 34 to $35 million on the table that will actually go back to home health care providers. Providers, um, if we can win that that uh, that case in the Seventh Circuit, it, we got our petition for cert granted by the court. They vacated the Seventh Circuit decision that previously said those people can't get their money back, and they remanded it basically and look at it, uh, relook at it under Janus. So we think there's a possibility of getting that money back too. And if that's the case, I think that it really is a big deal. Now, obviously. Um, proactively going forward, the idea that no one can be compelled to pay dues or fees to keep their job is great news, but it's even better news if we can go back and win some of that money back for those workers that were forced to pay. You bet, because they were indeed forced to pay. They didn't have a decision in that matter. Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, final question for you, sir. You've been very generous with your time, and the question is, on this Labor Day, where do you see organized labor going, the trend lines in this country, what they will try to do to perhaps provide uh, more value, and where do you see worker freedom going? Well, uh, we know that union officials are going to invest something north of $2 billion in these federal elections that are coming up in November to try to win back some of the power that's been taken away from them over the last few years. The chasm between rank-and-file workers and union officials is growing wider and wider and wider all the time as the union officials continue to rely on government privilege for their power. And, you know, once you once you rely on government privilege for your power, you're obliged to be in that process and play in politics. And, in fact, Tammy Baldwin, your Wisconsin senator, has got a bill in Congress that would repeal all the right-to-work laws across the country. I don't think she thought of that on her own. I think uh, Richard Trump and the AFL-CIO and other union officials across the country had something to do with that. She's a primary sponsor of that bill. So they're not giving up. They're going to go continue to try to maintain and maybe expand their compulsory unionism power that was granted back in the 1930s in the private sector in the 1950s, starting in Wisconsin, of all places. They're going to try to restore that and try to expand it. And, you know, I I don't hold out any hope, any silver lining hope that uh, that they're going to give up. Um, unfortunately, I think, or fortunately, I guess, the workers who they claim to represent are going to hold them accountable, and that will change their business model as we approach this Labor Day. Indeed. Thank you again for all that you do. Thank you for taking time for us on this day to talk about not only Labor Day, but the importance of worker freedom in the workplace and your important work at the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation goes on. Not only Mark Mix is a uh, uh, young-looking battler on the front of uh, worker rights, but my colleagues here say you have the perfect name for um, uh, classic rock DJ. Well, I, I think about 
doing DJ work after I'm done here. I haven't decided what I'm going to do when I grow up, Matt. So I, I, I hold out the possibility of being a, a disc jockey that does that turns uh, turns LPs on, a, on one of those DJ games. Yeah, I love it. Like uh, the, <laughs> playing your favorites from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Mark Mix. What do you think? I like it. I like it. <laughs> Very good. We will, Thanks, t- we will talk soon, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. And that is Mark Mix. He is, once again, president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, joining us to talk about the state of worker freedom on this Labor Day. Thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Kittle, MacGyver News Service.